You can turn in your Bible to John 12, we'll look at verses 27 through 36 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin. So chapter 12 is a uh, transition chapter in John's gospel. It's at the end of Jesus' uh, public ministry, his highly visible public ministry, those three years that the gospels record for us. Um, and it's it really the, the last time that he's really engaging with the crowds. From here on out, in the Gospel of John, um, he addresses his disciples more privately. We have the upper room discourse. And, uh, and then it's his arrest, his inquisition, his crucifixion and resurrection and uh, subsequent appearances. But uh, we're wading into the deep end of the Gospel now. <laughs> this is the deep end. Um, where understanding what Jesus is talking about really means entering into his thought world uh, in ways that might be unfamiliar to us. That shouldn't surprise us that God's ways and God's thoughts might be unfamiliar to us, and it might, be, might feel like we're wading into the deep end of the gospel here. Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So not to uh, intimidate you or discourage you as we're entering into the latter part of the gospel here, but the Lord teaches some pretty high stuff here, starting with passages like ours, uh, which should be fascinating and life-changing for us, but we're going to need his help if we're going to connect with it. I would say it's time to put on your thinking caps, but that won't help. Right? Um, you need his Holy Spirit. And so that's what we ask for. Uh, and so that's what we're going to ask for now. Let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, many people have died throughout history because of words like these that Jesus speaks to the people, and uh, he himself was put to death because of the enmity and opposition to words like this, and that's our major problem is that we have resistance against you, so we pray that you would overcome our resistance. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and to change our hearts to make us receptive to the words of Christ, to make us to be able to understand the words of Christ and to be changed by them into his likeness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, 
believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so, his prayer, sort of the main thing going on here, Father, glorify your name. We're talk, spend a bit of time talking about that. A lot of people have deep problems with the idea of glorifying God. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. A lot of people, I'm going to go ahead and say pretty much everybody, has deep problems with the idea of glorifying God. I struggle with my own internal resistance to that idea. I mean, the most basic instinct of humanity is not to glorify God. The most basic instinct of humanity is self-interest and self-glorification. And we really don't tolerate competitors for glory. The idea that there's a great high supreme being to whom I'm supposed to give all glory just doesn't sit well with me. I suspect that glorifying God will greatly diminish me. It'll take a lot away from me. If I glorify him and not myself, I'm going to be diminished. That sounds unpleasant, so I don't want to do it. Why would anyone want to do that? The scriptures are clear, though, that our self-interest actually will be our undoing. That our choice for ourselves against God is not good, not good in the short run or the long run. It's not good. In, in fact, our, our self-centeredness leads to isolation and it leads to misery because the same thing that is in us that resists glorifying God, that self-centeredness also makes true love and real community impossible. We're cutting ourselves off from all relationships when we're just self-interested, primarily, ultimately self-interested. We have to glorify God. We have to find a center, not, <clears throat> not to be self-centered, but to find a center outside ourselves, and that might just demand everything we've got, but it will be good. That's the way the scriptures set it forth for us. It might take everything, but it will be good. In our passage, Jesus is getting to the heart of these themes. He centers on the Father, not on himself. His sacrifice stands in stark contrast to a self-centered world. He rebuilds what the devil has torn down. He draws us outside of ourselves. He restores true love and real community. But if we reject him, we're stuck in the darkness of our self-centeredness. Don't be stuck in the darkness of your self-centeredness. There's an alternative. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at the, the statement of his that the hour has come. It's time for Jesus now. It's time for him to renew humanity, to fix what's broken through his sacrifice, especially the cross, right? Through his sacrifice, through his complete self-gift. It's time for him to fix humanity through that. And that is an agonizing reality for him to face. That's hard. That's not easy for him. He says, now is my soul troubled. I mean, you could say that's an understatement. I think that'd be fair. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus is truly human. He has a soul. 
His humanity isn't just for appearances, it's for real. He suffers things like the rest of us. The thought of his own death is deeply upsetting, even for Jesus. I'm going to say, especially for Jesus. It's more upsetting for Jesus than it would be for any of us to face the death that he was facing. Of all the people who ever faced death, he's the only one who fully knows what death really is. And he's the only one who doesn't deserve to go there, doesn't deserve to die. For Jesus, it will be a more terrible experience than it ever could be for us because his eternal, unbroken communion with God his Father will be severed, and he will suffer the full affliction of that hell. That's what hell is. That's what death is. He'll suffer the full affliction of it, the innocent one on behalf of the guilty. And it's traumatic enough that the Gospels record him sweating blood over it. You think you know what stress is? I don't mean to minimize your stress. You think you you know what angst is? You think you know what panic is? I'm not even sure what words to use to describe what he must have been feeling. But even though it's a completely legitimate prayer for him, actually, says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? You could say that. Totally legitimate. Even though it's legitimate for him to pray to be spared from such pain, he had a greater concern than self-preservation. For love's sake, he was willing to face the worst thing imaginable. In fact, that's the very reason why he was there, to do it. So here at the most difficult moment of his life, this was his overriding prayer. This prayer elbowed out all other prayers for him. (laughs) Even at a time like this, Father, glorify your name. He has the ultimate choice before him. Self-preservation or self-sacrifice. The ultimate choice, self-centeredness or God-centeredness. It's probably the greatest temptation to self-interest that anyone ever faced, and he freely chose the glory of his Father's name over his own preservation. He freely chose it. I would never have done that. Why would anybody do that? But our salvation is in this prayer. That's our salvation, the true humanity, in the true image of God. So we need to think about this prayer. Father, glorify your name. It's very short. It's a lot like other prayers that Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. Father, glorify your name. Not just glorify yourself. Glorify your name. What does that mean? In the Bible, names are very important, especially God's name. He has a lot of names, uh, but names are very important, especially God's name. And Rodney Whitaker says that the name is the person himself as made accessible to others. Right? So it isn't just who that person is, right? It's, it's who that person is communicated for a relationship. That's what a name is. That's what God's name is. It's the revelation of a person for relationships so that you can know him. I give my name to you in order that you 
would know me in order to be known by you. Otherwise, why even have such a thing as a name? Why even have such a thing as language? If not for relationship. But that's what a name is for, so that you can know me. Different people can use my name differently depending on our relationships. An enemy might use my name in a certain way. Wouldn't be pleasant to me. My wife, on the other hand, uses my name very differently. My children even have a special, more intimate name for me that no one else would ever use because it's a uniquely relational name, Daddy. You don't call me that. They do. They use that name to play. They use that name to ask for help. They use that name to call me into their bedroom to tuck them in at night. Jesus has the most intimate, perfect knowledge of God because he is God. He's God the Son. And he calls God Father in a way that only he can. Only he does in the scriptures. He calls God Father in a way that only he can because he is one with God. Because he is God. And he's God the Son in perfect relationship with the Father. So he calls him that. And that's his name. That's his intimate name. That's his special and unique name. And he is asking his father to glorify his name. To make his name known to us for relationship. In the very same way that only Jesus knows him as father. And it's like the prayer that he teaches his disciples to pray with him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's a prayer for us to know God as he truly is. That God would make himself known to us. And that his name, it's a prayer for his name to have the deepest significance for us. To have real meaning for us in our lives. And it's a prayer that the Father would be magnified and exalted in our hearts. And this is his prayer when his soul is troubled as he faces his own death. This is what he's praying. When no one would have faulted him for begging for his life, he begged for our lives, for our reunion with God as our Father, that we know him as Father just as he does. Pray like that. I, I would never have done that. Why would anybody do that? He's the only human who was never selfish, even for an instant, and his selfless prayer sought the glory of God for the good of other people, even though that prayer actually would mean his own death. Because how does God answer this prayer? How does God glorify his name? How does God make himself known to us as our Father? It's through the complete self-gift of his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we looked last week, verse 23, <clears throat> Jesus said that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So there's an equation here, the Son of Man being glorified and the name of the Father being glorified. There's some identity there. Right? Those things are equal. The glorification of God really is the glorification of Jesus Christ because, because he is the name of God made known to us for our relationship. He, 
His name is Emmanuel. His name is God with us. That's how we know God. It's through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is praying for the Father's name to be glorified, he's praying that God would be revealed to us for a relationship through his own glorification, that is, the way that he talks about it, through his death and resurrection as he's lifted up. That means put up on a cross first. In response to Jesus' prayer, verse 28, a voice came from heaven. Apparently it wasn't a voice saying something like, hey, you down there, listen up. It's a thundering voice, and the whole atmosphere is shaking. In response to Jesus' prayer, God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And I think what he's talking about, he says, I have glorified it, past tense, the Father glorified the Son in eternity through the Holy Spirit. I think there's some parallel here with John 17, which we'll get into later when we talk about John 17. But that now, when he says, I will glorify it again, now the Father will glorify the incarnate Son in history through the events that are about to take place, that are recorded for us in the Gospels. So what God is making known of himself, when Jesus asks him to glorify his name, to make himself known to us for a relationship where we would call him our father. What God is making known of himself to us here is that he's the kind of God who gives his life for the good of the other. That's what kind of God he is. That's what makes him who he is. He's the God who is love. He's the God who is true love and community of persons. And that's the God Jesus came into the world to reveal, and that's the God whose singular glory is revealed most clearly at the cross, and that's the answer to the question, why would anybody pray like this? Why would anybody want to do this? Why would anybody march toward that cross? Because this is who God really is. This is what he's really like. He's utterly different from self-centered people like us. I would never have done what Jesus did with my most desperate prayer, glorify God for the good of other people, because in my sin, I've made myself his enemy. I stand against him and everything he stands for, and I've opposed the way of his love. I've severed all relationships in my self-centeredness. That's why I'd never do it, never do what Jesus did here. I've opposed God in such a way, so much so, that in my self-centeredness, I can't even understand him. There's such a disconnect. He's standing there right in front of us. He's right there on the page. The words are in black and white. I can't even understand him. I get into the deep end of the gospel here, and I'm floundering. I can't even begin to fathom what it must be like for God to be who he is, for him to be like that. It doesn't make any sense. When I'm confronted with a clear, dramatic revelation of him, it just does not compute, even when he shatters the heavens with his voice. It should be clear. The whole world is ringing with the sound of his voice. But the crowd that stood there, they're just like me. They heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, though, he said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus knows They don't understand what's happening. He's giving the opportunity to recognize that they don't understand what's happening. They're missing something very big here. 
and it's all done so that, so that they would hear, so that they would know. It's for their sake that Jesus prays, and it's for their sake that God answers. This deep end of the gospel stuff that, that is easy to miss is of cosmic importance. There's nothing more life-changing, there's nothing more wondrous, nothing more worth your while than entering into Jesus' world and seeing God in him. Because of his sacrifice, everything is turned inside out and upside down. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he's talking about his death. When Jesus glorified God the Father through his prayer here and through his self-gift at the cross, he made God known in such a way that mended what was broken by sin. That's what he's talking about here. He confronted the lie. The lie that's at the root of all lies, that's at the root of all sin. He confronted the lie that God was selfish and withholding and stingy and just oriented on himself, getting and taking and keeping for himself. He confronted that lie by allowing himself to be put to death for love's sake, which showed, in fact, it's not God who's selfish, it's the whole world arrayed against him who's selfish. The whole world. And that's the judgment of this world that he's talking about. And the whole world was this way because of the devil. Genesis chapter 3, who had introduced the lie of God's selfishness into the world to its ruin. There's a sense in which the devil's ultimately responsible for the judgment that's on this world, for our believing the lie and our sinning against God. The devil is the one who's on the wrong side of history, though. He's on the wrong side of history, and anybody aligned with him is also on the wrong side of history because of what Jesus Christ has revealed about God at the cross. And that's good news for us. That's no reason to be afraid. That's good news for us, even though we have been on the wrong side of history, even though we have aligned ourselves with the devil against God, because the nature of God's triumph, the nature of God's victory, the nature of his glorification at the cross is the reunion of people with God. It's, it's love and peace. And it's making all wars to cease. Taken captive by the devil to do his will, self-centered people have resisted glorifying God and we've destroyed true love, and we've broken all relationships and, and real community because we just don't care about those things. Not really. It's impossible for self-centered people really to care about those things. But when Jesus glorified the Father's name and made him known to us as the one who gives his life for us, he won us over. He drew us to himself. If you've looked to Christ with faith to the crucified and resurrected Christ, with faith, you have been drawn outside of yourself. Your center has moved. It's relocated outside of you. And it's been placed on God. 
through Jesus Christ so that you are actually free from self-love. You're free for true love and for real community. It's a done deal. For us, that's past tense. This is the historical effect of the gospel. Through his sacrifice, as he was lifted up, drawing all men to himself, all kinds of people everywhere, not every single individual who has ever lived, but all kinds of people everywhere, through his sacrifice, Jesus Christ has drawn men and women to himself, and that group is called the assembly, the gathering, the church. Our only way out of the misery and isolation that's wreaked by our self-centeredness is to assemble around Jesus Christ, the utterly God-centered one. And it's only because his prayer was, Father, glorify your name. Praying for our good when he faced his own death to reveal God to us, it's only because of that that our humanity can be restored and recentered outside of ourselves, that we can become interested in God's glory again like we were made to be, which is really good that we can enter into love and community with each other in his name. Because he prayed, Father, glorify your name, even though it cost him his life, it would also mean his resurrection. It might have killed Jesus to pray this way, to be this kind of person. It might have killed him, but it didn't diminish him. And now he lives forever at God's right hand in glory. And that's the kind of life. And that's the kind of prayer that Jesus has invited you to join him in. To share with him. To seek the glory of God's name for the good of others. For love's sake to lay down your life in order to take it up again. And it will not diminish you either. You might lose everything. You might give everything. But it won't diminish you. says this in a lot of places in the scriptures, but James chapter 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exalt you. Jesus shows us that's what kind of God he is and those are his good plans. Even for people like us. Not just for Jesus himself, but for people like us. He says it in uh, Matthew's gospel chapter 23, again, sort of in, a, in the context of talking about judgment. He says that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that kind of arrangement might not even make sense to you. I mean, how does humbling myself and glorifying God and living for the good of others and spending my life and giving my life and pouring it all the way out, how does that not just diminish me until I just disappear completely? crowds wondered how it could be possible for Jesus to die and that that would be his lifting up, that would be his glorification, that would be his exaltation. How is that possible? If he's so humble that he utterly spends himself for love and dies, doesn't that just mean that he's so diminished that he disappears and ends? How can this one who dies, remain forever. That's what they ask him. Well, the resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? And that all takes a while to sink in, even for those who trust Jesus. 
But Jesus says, as long as you stay in the darkness of your self-centeredness, you'll never see anything. You'll never know anything. You'll have no guidance for what it means to live with God. You'll be stumbling around in the dark. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. Don't be stuck in the darkness of your own self-centeredness. There's an alternative. If you cling to Jesus, who is the true light, then, he says, you'll be sons of light. You'll become sons of light. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you will see where God is taking you, and you'll become more like the light, more like Jesus, concerned for the glory of God and the good of others, and knowing that those are really the same thing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would show us through Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit who renews our hearts and minds. Show us how recentering ourselves and seeking your glory really is for the good of others and really is for our good. Even if we pour out our lives to the point of death for the sake of your kingdom, it does not mean we are ended does not mean we're diminished because whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We pray that you would teach us what that means as we fix our eyes on Christ and change us into his image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.